consistently in my career trying to pick the right zoom level. So sometimes the right zoom level for a performance problem, which I've gotten to work on really intense performance and very quirky, you know, find the the needle in the haystack type of network bugs before in, in major and important installations. And the same skills of like, well, why do we keep having the same type of systemic problems in our soft set? They're, they're very similar actually, right? Because you have to pick the right zoom level. You have to design an experiment or series of experiments to get the right answer. And then you have to have the influence to convince everybody you're right. And the same is true. I mean, it, I, I am lucky enough to have the breadth and depth of, of experience in a lot of different technical areas and then grow and as you zoom out and out, the people that are part of these enterprises trying to build these things are a critical part of this piece. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. I am here today with my very good friend, Kevin Nassery. I am so happy Kevin, to have you on this podcast. Kevin and I met in 2008 at eBay, where he was a consulting architect on our next generation firewall deployment. And I was the chief of staff for the global information security team. Um, later, our professional paths crossed again when we both worked at Sigital. Um, yeah, Kevin, welcome. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. I would like to know everything about you. And I would like to start by asking you where you grew up and what you were like as a young person. Ah, I I grew up in Quincy, Illinois, which is, as I've said, at security conferences, if you're a chubby guy like me looking at California, Quincy, Illinois is the belly button. <laughs> so it's right across the river from Hannibal, Missouri, Mark Twain country. But I think the notable thing is it's like classic Midwest. It's the biggest little town around. So it's two hours from St. Louis, you know, two hours from Springfield and five hours from Chicago, which I think people like Illinois, just everybody thinks is Chicago and suburbs. Um, but we're, yeah, we're, we were kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So Kevin, I have to ask, how did you and your family end up there? I actually just watched the movie Minari. Oh. Ah. like a Korean immigrant family to the Midwest of the United States. Thought it was super interesting. I ended up marrying a guy from the Midwest. And so I, have a perspective on the Midwest now that I did not a decade ago. Um, but I wonder if you might share your family story and how you came to live in that small town. Absolutely. So my dad, who was a really rock star, um, uh, you know, medical student at the time. So my dad is from Iran or was from Iran. He grew up um, in the 50s and 60s and pre-revolution um, or pre-Iranian revolution in, in 79, the U.S. and Iran had, um, you know, much more intense, um, both to positive and negative effect, but, but much more uh, cooperative um, immigration status and things like that. And they actually had a program to bring talented doctors. So you would take a test um, as a graduate 
you know, a, a young physician who hasn't practiced yet, you would take a test um, after you did your military service or whatever. And if you scored well enough, you could come to the United States and start, um, you know, and, and the idea was that ultimately those doctors would go back to Iran being better doctors, but a lot of them stayed. So my dad came to Chicago um, in 71 and started practicing medicine as his, as a resident and a senior resident. And then after he finished his residency, one of his uh, professors had had a practice in Quincy, Illinois. So it was kind of like he was a traveling professor and he was retiring. So it was an opportunity. And my dad had met my mom in Chicago and they relocated to Quincy to kind of pick up that practice because my dad is my dad was a, a, a pulmonologist. So respiratory systems and, and keeping uh, like critical care medicine. And that was like. It was kind of they needed one of those things to be in the greater regions for for people you know who they were they were basically in that hospital system. So he he kind of and then he was a doctor there for in that in that hospital network for forty four years. So that's how we ended up in Quincy. That is so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with me and our listeners. Why didn't you become a doctor? Uh, <laughs> you know, if you had asked me when I was a kid, I definitely would have maybe told you that I wanted to be a doctor like my dad. But at the same time, I was spending like eight or 10 hours on a computer a day. It was like an unhealthy amount of my mom was good about making us do other things. Like she's actually fantastic about like making us play instruments and giving us, I mean, just a super generous and, and, um, uh, really great, um, both parents, you know, supportive. I was in every activity, even the stuff I wasn't good at, like I'm terrible at the violin, but you know, it's a good life lesson for your mom to make you try something and you find out not even try something, make you do something for like 10 years and you know you're not good at it. It's like a very powerful lesson for, for a kid. So, um, yeah, that, I, I forget exactly what question you, you, you asked, asked me, but in terms of like why I didn't, oh, why I didn't become a doctor, I just got so passionate about technology that it was just kind of the default. Um, I loved, you know, and I grew up at a time where computers were like not simple, but you had to understand how they worked a little bit to get them to run. So it exposed a lot more of the internal mechanisms that like I can't imagine now picking up an iPad as a, you know, as you have a, I think a five-year-old daughter. Is she five? Mm -hmm. That's correct. I can't imagine like her like trying to even conceive of what's going on behind the scenes of an iPad. Whereas like I had to like, okay, well, I'm definitely booting the computer and running these commands to get the windowing system to load and like all those little steps in between. So I loved picking that stuff apart and um, learning how they worked. That is so cool. Why did your family have a computer in the home? Well, good question. My dad was, my dad and mom um, were, were both kind of academics. My mom uh, came up um, as an immunologist. She has a PhD in immunology and was a, a college professor. But my dad was also the, um, I, I would say, an innovator. Like he was in a small community. So he had to pioneer and bring a lot of medical technology to the hospital network there, like pulmonary function tests. So he, and he was a bit of a gadget guy. So in that effort, he was always kind of on the cutting edge. I wouldn't say he was a computer guy, but he was a good doctor and he wanted the technology to, um, to leverage that in diagnosis and management of patient care. So this kind of like med early medical device space. And that meant he had to learn about computers. So he had like the information systems guy from the hospital come to our house when I was four 
and install like our first, you know, dual five and, and, a, and three quarter floppy or five and a quarter floppy IBM 8088. And it just so happened that I had a bit of a knack for it. So I kind of also became my dad's like IT guy. Like I remember going to the clinic and hospital when I was like eight and nine and helping him get those new systems running. That is so cool. Kevin, I understand that you worked at an ISP when you were 15 years old before you had a driver's license. Yes, <laughs> I did. Yeah, my mom, I may be, you know, one of the few people that uh, my mom had to drop me off for my ISP sysadmin job. Yeah. How did you get that opportunity? How did you decide that was something that you were interested in? Hmm. So I had continued on, you know, and eventually, you know, we we got on the, I mean, the internet came to town and at the time, you know, you would, you would dial up on your computer and a lot of the things you had to do, you know, I actually logged into the mail server for the first time and checked my email through a telnet window. Right. So we didn't run Eudora quite yet. We had kind of an older computer. So I started learning Unix in like 1993, 1994 as just the next thing to be like, well, what is this? I'm actually typing on a command prompt on a remote computer. And like I read some books that that touched vaguely on Unix, like uh, the cuckoo's egg with Cliff Stoll. And there were some Unix commands in there and I would just type them into my shell account. Anyway, so I started learning Unix, and then one of the people I had met through through kind of the local community, another kid, um, actually helped me install Linux. Um, so like he and I like met in person, and he he we exchanged actually zip disk if you remember zip disk. Um, and he, over the phone, he he kind of helped me through. Shout out to Eric Ward; he's still a good friend of mine, and and uh, we work together, you know, uh, still to this day sometimes. But um, so I had Linux and that open source, uh, thing really started the path of, I loved managing my own services. So I wasn't, a, I didn't play a bunch of computer games. I played, a, I played some, but, um, I convinced my parents to get us like ISDN, which was like early broadband connectivity in our house. And again, my dad was a tech guy, so it wasn't that hard, but so we were like the first person with like broadband in town sort of, and that actually was a good way for me to meet and interact with the internet service provider people because all of a sudden they're talking to a you know a 11 or 12 year old on the phone about setting up an ISDN router <laughs> and I, so I became friends with them and also started like actually managing my own services so like registering my own domain I've had the same email address since like 1995 and managing my own domain services DNS services mail server stuff like that on open source unix so open source really gave me a ton of opportunities um, to, to do that for the first time and then asking questions and interacting. And that self-education of managing my own services really played out great when coincidentally there was this kind of like exodus at the time of, you know, four or five of the Unix people were finally going to college. And I was, you know, four years younger than, than them. Um, a couple of people took jobs, you know, out of town, like the, a couple, two of the, the main People that worked for that ISP went to Columbia, Missouri and, and took on kind of network engineering and like, you know, just job progression roles. And that left a vacuum in my hometown. And I just happened when I was 15 to be the person who pretty much knew the most about Unix systems administration um, that they could count on to be local while they kind of advised from remote. So that's how I got the job. It is so cool. I have 
so much admiration for you. And I am so impressed by you. I just think it is so awesome. Kevin, tell me about the day you became a security guy. Ah, it wasn't long after. I mean, if you park a 15-year-old at your ISP data center and kind of put them in charge, uh, even in the 90s, they will get hacked. <laughs> so I actually, I tell I tell a, a, a version of this story on uh, on my own podcast. So one of the things is I wanted to to come on your podcast to let people know that I also have a podcast called Shared Secrets. But I do cover the story of of one day, you know, some of that technical security debt caught up with me. And actually, I'll, I'll share a little bit of the story. I was running some some network services that were unpatched. It, they were like the NFS, you know, network file sharing network services. And that led to a pretty complete compromise of that ISP. Like everything was kind of running those services. So we got hacked. Um, we didn't lose any data, but definitely there was some privacy compromise and things like that. But I learned a tremendous life lesson, not only from like incident management and recovery, but like... I really took to heart like the root cause analysis and figuring out what were the decisions I made along the way that kind of led to those exposures. What are the ways that we could evolve to try to prevent that? So like minimizing the footprint and package installations, putting up some uh, network access control, packet filtering on the routers. And that, that just, that whole experience really to me being a good system engineer and network engineer then became a part of a, a good part of that was about security of it, right? So performance, availability, and security all coming together in, in that job, and, and I've I've kind of been that way ever since. Like, there's a lot of security stuff we do that's add on and kind of value add, but most of the security stuff we should be doing is like making sure we're doing those other things well. I am just like I remain in awe of you. I'm also thinking about which parts of your career. I want to ask you more about. <laughs> well, one, the feeling is mutual. And I will say I was the tech guy, right? Like I, I don't know. I, in fact, the first, I was like lucky enough that the first 10 years of my career, you know, being the tech jerk was kind of excusable based on how young I was until it wasn't. So I learned that that lesson, right? Which I think some tech guys, if they enter the field at, you know, 24 or 25 after, you know, whatever, then it's they're in their mid thirties before they realize they're being a jerk to people. <laughs> so I got that out of the way. But the one thing I wanted, you know, you, I, I, it's very generous of you to say that you're in awe of me. I learned a very when I was making that transition from jerky tech guy, uh, hopefully to uh, you know sage security <laughs> wisdom person. I met you and I I was really impressed and it started to resonate with me how important it was to measure success. You know, that that was something that you were excellent at. And I that has become probably a bigger theme in my life. Like I get more out of understanding how to measure security success and test our theories and things that I, you know, that that you kind of open the door to, to me on than I have a, probably some of those those deep tech problem solving skills or, or at least combining kind of my perspectives to, to do that. well. Thank you. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned your podcast, Shared Secrets. I had so much fun doing an episode with you and Dennis Sheridan. That's right. Episode eight, if you guys want to check it out, Caroline comes on and tells, shares an amazing secret of her, her own. It's a really good secret. Um, so, Kevin, you, like many folks, got your start in security 
from the networking side and you're focused on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. For many years now, you've been focused on application security, software security. What did that transition look like for you? Yeah, I, it's, it is a kind of an interesting one because when I started doing tech work and then even security work for years, application security wasn't really a thing yet. We, in some ways, we all ran the same software, right? Like those NFS services. Everybody ran the same copies and same versions of that, or, you know, there was different Unixes out there. And so there would be some diversification, but we didn't really write a bunch of code that people could attack to gain access to our systems. It was less so. But then with that spike of web applications and early shopping carts and, and web application security became a thing, um, I was still working on on infrastructure stuff at the time. So I was maybe a, a latecomer to that. And I was never, you know, a developer that contributed to software products. I wrote code to do my job occasionally and, and, and worked on that stuff. But Ultimately, I came to, I, I went to work for US Bank and, and had one of those infrastructure types of jobs where I was like solving security problems with, you know, the network and systems and things like that. And I ended up like absorbing a software security group. So started thinking about development life cycles and thinking about the process of building software and those types of things. And I still kind of brought this like, I want to understand how these things work. I want to understand, like, what is the process to build a piece of software and what are the things that, like we said before, they should be doing as they're building software to make it secure and what are the things that we can add on to kind of help them and, 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 and pivot on. So I took this, the same types of skills that I was using to, you know, figure out how things work and figure out the opportunity for mistakes and things like that and brought it to the, the kind of, um, this helping people build software security programs. And, you know, I was very, I'm very fortunate enough also that there, when I, where I went to work, we had the BSIM framework and I became a BSIM assessor. I just got to see how a bunch of programs worked, right? And pick them apart a little bit and understand, you know, what tends to work well, what doesn't tend to work well. And I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, you, you and I have I've probably often heard that, you know, that kind of, lifecycle consulting being referred to as maybe management consulting for software security. I always thought of it as like industrial engineering, right? Because software development is a technical engineering process. So I think the better analogy is for industrial engineering. So I kind of see myself as a tech guy who's who's trying to solve and work on those, those problems with development. Um, and also just people. The, the, I mean, your podcast is great because it focuses and it's not, it's not just that people are the crux of our weaknesses, like with phishing and all that stuff or, or, you know, but the incentive models and how people are interacting with each other, even on the security process is really important. Um, so, you know, if somebody's misincentivized to find more bugs and fix less bugs or whatever it is, uh, we see those problems in real life and we've got to kind of treat it like an economics, uh, security economics lesson too. You know, Kevin, there's something kind of important that you totally skimmed over. You were like, yeah, I was at U.S. Bank. I did these things. People, Kevin was the vice president of assessment services at U.S. Bank. Um, I just want to call that out. Um, I also, you know, it's so funny to me to hear you describe a former version of yourself as sort of like a tech jerk. Um, you know, hearing you tell the story 
I can see that when I met you, maybe you were like post learning that lesson. Um, but I just don't, I just don't see it. That's fine. Um, it, you go ahead. I, it, it, here's why I could have been perceived as a jerk is because I only cared about being technically right. Um, you know, so if I could put down, you know, what looked like a mathematical proof, A, B, C of where I thought I was right. And that differed from other people's guesses or theories or, or observations. I, that was the end of the argument for me. I never, I never once until, um, and I can, I can give you the, the kind of moment in which I learned that lesson. But the thing that, the thing that matters more is having the credibility and influence with people. So that, you know, in some trust, so you don't always have to default and you, it's not always that kind of being right measuring contest to say, okay, well, where's your mathematical proof? And that can really turn people off. And that was actually a lesson I learned when I was, you know, I was uh, uh, kind of a director of infrastructure at Classified Ventures that had some, you know, cars.com and apartments.com. I went through a uh, leadership training course and one of the activities of that was to get a 360 review. So all this time I thought like, man, I'm doing great. I, I kind of climbed the ranks of this thing, but I got some really good critical feedback that says, yeah, Kevin's like great technically, but he he needs to work on his soft skills in those particular areas. And and I learned that lesson and I actually gave a talk about it at a security conference too, which is like, how are you managing your influence with others? How are you managing your relationships? Why maybe sometimes it doesn't matter if you're, you can, you can explain why you're technically right because the other person doesn't have the same background to follow that, you know, complete technical briefing. So they need to trust that you're right and they trust by your right by, by a level of kindness and, and shared success, right? I think you build relationships on working on projects with people and having the outcomes of those projects to be a positive experience and have positive outcomes. Very cool. Very cool. And I think so wonderful for folks listening to hear your perspective and your reflections on your own growth. Um, the other thing I want to point out is that when Kevin says he was a decent assessor, there were literally like five of these on the planet. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. I think it's pretty cool. I am I remain obsessed with the BSIM. I think it's so cool. I myself also learned so much about software security by talking to dozens and dozens of organizations about their security processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a really cool project. I'm, I'm happy that I can have a part of it. And now my part also includes trying to get that number up of teaching um, our our, our um uh, more junior consultants on, uh, about software security and how those things fit together. That's been a super rewarding experience to me. So although there's slightly more than five, I also have a piece in those last seven that, <laughs> that are out there. So of, of helping them, uh, helping them do it for the first time. Very cool. I think that on some level you see yourself as a tech person. I know that when I think of you, I think of you as a management person. I think of you as a leadership person and a program person. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, what was it like for you having been a person naturally drawn to technology and naturally interested in just like uncovering layer after layer, what's underneath, can I go deeper? 
how much more can I understand this? Can I really get to the root of understanding this? How did you, how did you then find yourself applying a similar kind of, I guess you could even call it research and analysis when it came to things like people building teams and building programs? It's a good, that's, that's a great way to put it. Um, cause I do see myself as, still, like I said, industrial engineering on this side of things. And I don't, some of them are, there are soft skills in there, like efficiently interviewing people and making, you know, making sure people are comfortable in, in those interviews and things like that. So you can get your data efficiently. But really this, you know, I, I've just consistently in my career trying to pick the right zoom level. So sometimes the right zoom level for a performance problem, which I've gotten to work on really intense performance and very quirky, you know, find the the needle in the haystack type of network bugs before in, in major and important installations. And the same skills of like, well, why do we keep having the same type of systemic problems in our soft set? They're, they're very similar, actually, right? Because you have to pick the right zoom level. You have to design an experiment or series of experiments to get the right answer. And then you have to have the influence to convince everybody you're right. And the same is true. I mean, it, I, I am lucky enough to have to, to get the breadth and depth of, of experience in a lot of different technical areas and then grow. And as you zoom out and out, the people that are part of these enterprises trying to build these things are a critical part of this piece. So not ignoring that and um, not understanding what are the, the motivations and what are the business drivers and things like that, you know, you, you may never have enough context of your security problem at that point to fix it. So I, I see it, you know, I see me being a fairly well-rounded security strategist depending on this piece. And, and also it's the piece that people really struggle with from an objective point of view. Like you can have an internal person that, that finds those deep technical bugs or finds one or two. Sometimes you really need the outside perspective for somebody to come in and look at how some things fit together. Who's looked at a bunch of other programs. So from consulting wise, it's also in some ways a more marketable skill for me to understand, you know, the good and bad shapes of different programs and measurements and things like that. Very cool. So. I have a couple of questions left. Mm -hmm. One of them is about the OWASP top 10. And my question to you is, if the first version came out in 2003, the current version came out in 2017, and a lot of the stuff is the same, why do you think that is? I don't, are you like spying on me? Because I have had a very similar conversation and I, we did not talk about this question. So I'm very impressed, but um, you know, it's the, the themes of security. I, I we have a, a, a segment on our podcast. It's just a quick intro, but you know, there's, it, it dates way back before we've known a lot about how to do security right for a really long time. It's, it's just slowing down at the right times and getting the right stuff done. Because when I was a kid, 
the dimensions of, of attacks and the tricks and games we used to play on each other were just iterations on, on, you know, the same types of bugs. And, you know, if you, if you want to find the point in time in which this proves it is look up, you know, Salter versus Schroeder, um, the, the design principles for, for security, which was, you know, released in 1977, I think. I mean, they do an excellent job. I mean, it, it almost reads, I mean, the OS top 10, you could make, an argument that it's just directly traceable to each and every one of those design principles. So computer security is hard on the implementation side of things. We make, you know, the same general classes of mistakes and have been, been making them. There's only so many categories you can think about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's of course going to be the same. Like, yeah, where there's inputs, outputs, you know, <laughs> and, and trust and, you know, those things will evolve over time based on what features we tend to use to build and, and what are the technologies. And, you know, now we're seeing kind of maybe an argument for a, a new type of bug that should come in the OS top 10 in terms of, you know, like dynamic dependency loading from network sources and things like that in terms of namespace collisions. But all those things, you know, root back to how we're, how we're building information systems, not just software. Um, and, you know, those, those key design concepts. Um, are hard to get right, I guess. So, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna map and they're gonna, they're gonna look pretty similar, you know, across, I don't know, what's 15 years of OS top 10? How long has it been out? Maybe even longer than that? Is that 2007? Near, nearly, nearly 20 years. The first one came out in 2003. And Kevin, which I is a great resource. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, totally. the, it's, it is awesome, but, but that's, you know, it's, it doesn't need to change that much. Um, it just needs to adapt with the technology to make the examples relevant. Those are all, I would say people should treat those as examples of design and implementation failure. Very cool. And I guess we'll never know if I hacked into your network to find out that you've been thinking about this lately or if, uh, you and I are both just security nerds that think about the same thing from time to time. <laughs> um, last question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, sort of like in the middle of Silicon Valley, if you will. You grew up in the Midwest. We sort of, in our own ways, taking our own paths, found ourselves with kind of similar roles. Um, there is no way that I, at age 16, would have been working at an ISP. Um, at the same time, I can see that having graduated with a technical degree and searching for jobs in Silicon Valley, that there was so much opportunity for me. So it's just an interesting thing for me to consider. You know, none of us choose where we are born or the families that we are born into. And certainly we make our lives for ourselves. But I'm just thinking to myself, like, it is super interesting how each of us, you know, both you and I, as well as any of our guests on this podcast, as well as, frankly, any information security professional on the planet, um, has a different path. I want I thought about this as a kid, right? I always wanted to be in the Bay Area because you see like the James Bond movie that has the microchips in it. You read books and, you know, I remember watching the like Noah, Noah Wiley, uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley made for TV, like having that community that was there and all those different things around. And, 
I mean, San Francisco is this kind of like dream place for me. And I wanted to go, you went to Berkeley. Like that was the, I remember going, visiting San Francisco and my mom was taking an astronomy class at Berkeley. And I'm like, oh, this is where I want to go. But the reality is, is, I mean, you couldn't go work for an ISP when you're 15 because there was like, I don't know, 100,000 Unix people in <laughs> in San Francisco that would probably beat you out for that job. Um I was probably one of the, if not the best, you know, Unix person in 1998 in my, you know, 45,000, you know, person hometown. And the opportunity, I got opportunities from not being in it in a, in a, um, vivacious, you know, like the, the, the technical epicenter, um, because technology was still reaching out, right? Like communications and, and infrastructure was fanning out all, all over the nation. And I was just right place, right time and got a lot of those. I wouldn't have had those opportunities and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to go work for a data center company when I was 18. Like I, I went to college for a couple of weeks and it was dot com boom and I was able to get a good job immediately working, had to go back to school later. So those are the types of, of, of opportunities that I think you know, different markets and different places and different backgrounds. And a lot of people on my podcast all share that same, like, you know, back, you know, Illinois, central Illinois, you know, there wasn't a ton of people around. So we, so we got the opportunities and had to be a little bit scrappy in that versus, you know, the, the other good thing and, and a positive thing is, is that the community maybe that, that uh, a, a world like San Francisco might've had at the time. So. You could, you'll, you'll be able to speak better to that than I would. So cool. You know, the last thing I'll say before we wrap up is I remember the last time that you and I got to be physically together. You were visiting San Francisco and we went for a walk in St. Francis Woods, which is right across the street from where my old house used to be. Um, mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for that time and I really miss you and I'm so looking forward to the next time that we can meet and I'm so glad that we've connected. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's great. Thanks. My pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen test as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.